Praise the Lord. I hope you brought a Bible. Anybody love the word of the Lord? I was talking to a brother before church, and, and basically the summation of our conversation was there's nothing like the word. You can read all kinds of things about the word, but there's nothing like the word. And I'm a firm believer that we've got to allow scripture to interpret scripture. There's nothing better to figure out what a verse means than digging through the word and finding something that correlates to it. And so tonight we're going to do a little bit of that. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 1. This is no doubt a very familiar portion of scripture to most of us. John chapter 3, we're going to start with verse 1. And our good friend named Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Everybody say cannot with me. Cannot. He cannot. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered in verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Everybody again, say with me, he cannot. Yeah. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? So tonight I want to teach you from this thought, What do you mean, born again? What do you mean, born again? If you would, lay your Bible down. Let's pray for the word of the Lord to go forth, for him to help, to minister. God, we thank you for the privilege to come before you and share the truth and love. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, for your presence that we feel in this place. God, I ask that you would help me to minister your word. And Lord, let it be received upon good ground with ears that are ready to hear, with hearts that are ready to receive. Let us be edified and let us be strengthened. And Lord, let us get to know you just a little bit better tonight. We ask in the name of Jesus and everybody says amen. 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 You may be seated. So let's talk about our good friend Nicodemus for just a moment. He is apparently given John's writings, a ruler of the Jews and a man of the Pharisees. Now, the term Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word parash, which means to separate. Or if you would say parushim, that means Pharisee, so one who is separated. And the Pharisees were known for their opposition to the secularization of Jewish people by Greek thought and idolatry. So these Pharisees became a closely organized group very loyal to the society they lived in, to each other, but separate from others and even their own people who were becoming more like the Greeks. They pledged themselves to obey all facets of the traditions of the minutest detail and were sticklers for ceremonial purity. Because of their zeal for the law, their intense commitment to the word of God, a Pharisee was someone who was considered to be the most accurate expositor of Jewish law. While priests controlled the rituals of the temple, scribes and sages, later called rabbis, 
or Hebrew for teacher or master, dominated the study of Torah. So in today's term, Nicodemus would be like someone who'd gone to law school. He's got his doctor of law, his juris doctorate. He's passed the bar exam. He's practiced law successfully for many years. Now he's not only able to, to go to the court, minister to the judge, and make a case, but he's able to teach this law. He's able to interpret the law. He's able to apply it in fact. So well-versed in Jewish law was he that according to the end of verse 1, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish legislative and judicial court with its origins dating back to Moses and the 70 elders that he appointed to make judgment calls on the issues between God's people as it relates to the word of God. So this court were the law experts of their day. So in light of this, let's examine further the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. John 3 and 2 says that he, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. Now, I've heard people speculate that he must have come under the cover of darkness because he didn't want his other Pharisee buddies to figure out that he was in relations with this Jesus. That he was kind of subverting their religious system with a guy that was kind of kicking the religious system. So it wasn't so much that he was trying to be secretive. But everywhere that Jesus went, he was surrounded by large gatherings of people. So I think Nicodemus was more so trying to catch a private audience with Jesus. So Nicodemus is sincere, he's hungry. But Pharisees, unlike their Sadducee counterparts, they believe in the supernatural. The miracles that Jesus has performed has gotten Nicodemus' attention. So it's under these auspices that he seeks an audience at night alone with Jesus, seeking to gain additional understanding. And as many of you know very well in this setting where Jesus proclaims to Nicodemus that seeing the kingdom of God requires a person to be born again. Jesus' teaching often generated more questions, as it did here with Nicodemus. So imagine with me, though, the thoughts and the images that must have been running through Nicodemus's mind as he ponders the statement that would cause someone to ask in response what seems to be a quite absurd question. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? How can he be born again? So Jesus answers in verse 5, verily, verily. And now this double verily isn't like Jesus was literally sitting across from Nicodemus and said, verily, verily. It was more an emphatic. It's a double emphatic to where he says, except a man be born again. It's emphasis. Except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It is with that emphasis that Jesus explains this truth. It's hard to convey that in writing, except I think modern times we would probably bold it and do it all caps, but they don't do that in the Bible, so it's, that's what the verily, verily is there for. Sometimes you see it truly, truly, but literally. It's kind of like, and I'll get to this later, where God says, Abraham, Abraham. It's not that he said Abraham's twice, named twice, but he's yelling Abraham's name to get his attention. So Jesus is really trying to grab a hold of Nicodemus' mind and his thoughts and grab a hold of his attention here. He says in verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. In verse 7, he tells Nicodemus, Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. So in other words, he's telling Nicodemus, You should not be surprised that I'm telling you that you must be born again. Let's go to verse 9. It says, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? 
How can it be? Now, if you're like me and you love the word, when you read that question, it probably makes you think of another place in scripture where somebody asked the same question or similar question. In Luke chapter 1, Zacharias was ministering in the temple when an angel appears to him and declares that he and his wife, who is apparently old, well stricken in years, they're going to have a son. And here's this priest ministering and he says, how should I know this? I'm an old man, my wife well stricken. Now see, there, there is a biblical precedent that was already established for what the angel was telling Zacharias. Zacharias, being a priest, should have known that Abraham and Sarah were also very old when God opened her womb and blessed them with a child. He returned Sarah to a time of life, blessing them with a son named Isaac. So Zacharias should have known that God could do this for him and Elizabeth. So because of his basic unbelief, the angel makes him dumb. He can't speak until John is born and he writes down his name. Then he's, his mouth is loosed again. But the same angel, Gabriel, appears to a virgin in Galilee and proclaims to her that she'll bring forth a son and she's to call his name Jesus. And in her dismay, she replies with a similar question. She says, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Zechariah and Elizabeth were married, old, but still married. Mary, not married, a young virgin. So she asks, how is this possible? There's no precedent for what the angel told her. So naturally, she would, she would have this quizzical question about how in the world is this supposed to happen if I've never been with a man and I'm not married? Does that make sense? So Zechariah and Elizabeth should have known because there's precedent. Mary had the right to question. I often wondered, well, why, why did they get that treatment? But I think that that's the reason. There's Bible for this. But it's yet as though as he and his wife Elizabeth were ignorant of that account of Sarah and Abraham and asks how it's possible. Now Nicodemus, a Pharisee, given a spiritual concept, questions it. How can that be? If Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus were like Mary's, with no prior precedent, no prior incident upon which to draw a comparison, I think Jesus' response might have been different. But listen to how Jesus responds in John 3 and 10. And I don't know how you read this, but when I read it, I read it with a little bit of sarcasm. So Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a teacher? Aren't you a teacher of Israel, yet knowest not these things? I mean, that's how I read it. That's the Jonathan Arnett translation for what it's worth. So he's saying to him, how do you call yourself a teacher? And you don't know about these things that I'm telling you. So the way Jesus responded caused me to believe that there had to have been examples of what we call the new birth that Nicodemus should have known. And it led me on a quest. So based on Old Testament scriptures, what Nicodemus would have had available to him, why should he have known that being born again would be the requirement for salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. This is Paul. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. And Paul says again, according to the scriptures. But what scriptures? Paul didn't have the gospels that we have. Paul had the Old Testament. 
So apparently, according to the scriptures that Paul had, it testified that Jesus Christ was going to be born, die, buried, and resurrect. Twice, according to the scriptures. So my question is, what scriptures then? I'm going to answer, don't worry. So the new birth, regeneration, being born again of water and spirit is not just a New Testament concept. While it is something that is made available to us by way of the gospel, by the death, by the burial, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the new birth is not a new idea. So let's go on a journey together tonight through the word, and let's see why Nicodemus should have grasped this better. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, with the keys of the kingdom, tells the crowd that had gathered in Jerusalem how we enter the kingdom. That entrance into the kingdom requires us to repent, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ by immersion, to be buried in water for the remission of sin and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, which we all know is evidenced by speaking in other tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. So he brings the crowd back to a place of Joel's prophecy regarding the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. The prophet Isaiah declares that God will do a new thing among his people in Isaiah 42 and 9 and 43 and 19 in spite of their repeated idolatry and transgression of the covenant. And he says this in Isaiah 44, 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Be thankful for his help. He says, fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, my beloved, whom I have chosen. Listen to what he says. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So we've got water and we've got spirit that are going to be poured out upon God's people. Images of water and spirit. These two images which Jesus refers to in his conversation with Nicodemus. And then Isaiah even uses vivid imagery of a woman crying out in labor to illustrate the anticipation of new things that God's going to do for his people in Isaiah 42, 14. The following chapters go on to describe Israel's return from exile, their new birth as a faithful people of God, and even restoration of a new creation. Continuing to develop this thought of the rebirth and of the people of God, Ezekiel as well as Jeremiah elaborate on the promised new covenant, a covenant that will involve cleansing with water, a new heart, and a new spirit. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28. For I will take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness, from all your idols, will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Why? To cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall keep my judgments and do them. It's only, it's only, we're only able to do that by the Holy Ghost. And then he says, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. These new covenant realities are then graphically illustrated for Ezekiel in 37, 1 through 14 in this apocalyptic vision where he witnesses a valley that's full of dry bones that he's called to prophesy to that comes to life. They represent the hopeless and cut off people of Israel, which at the word of God miraculously come together, are covered with sinew and flesh, 
receive the breath of God and live. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand. Man, picture that. The day that I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband to them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. Write it in their hearts, will be their God, and they shall be my people. And let's follow Jeremiah's reference to the exodus from Egypt. So when the children of Israel's Egyptian bondage can be likened to our sinful bondage, where Egypt serves as a type of the world and a type of sin. The first step in our, con in our conversion process, the first step in our salvation must include an exit from Egypt. What occurs after our, e our exit or repentance is critical. Their exit, according to Exodus 13, 17, and 18, apparently included two options. Follow with me. 17 says, And it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines. So apparently they could have gone through the land of the Philistines, although that was near. That would have been easier. That was closer. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and return to Egypt. There was a closer, less difficult way, but that way would have led them through the land of the Philistines. Now the Israelites for 400 years had been slaves, not soldiers. And these were a group of people not trained to fight. And so in his wisdom, he knew that if they took the shortcut out of Egypt, they'd encounter Philistines who were trained to fight. And at the sight of war, the Israelites would repent or turn back to Egypt. So verse 18 says, But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. You cannot leave Egypt without going through water. Mm. So when encamped, at the Red Sea, now seemingly trapped, led and protected by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. A strong wind blew all night that divided the sea, and Israel went through on dry ground. Now, wind is the Hebrew word ruach, which is also translated spirit. So the children of Israel exit Egypt by repentance. They go through the Red Sea, water baptism, led by the spirit, the Ruach of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They had to obey the gospel. You and I have to obey the gospel. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, referring to them that came out of Egypt by the way of the Red Sea, that the gospel was preached unto them. But it says that it wasn't mixed with faith in them that heard it, 
And to them that it was first preached, didn't enter in because of unbelief. So after coming out of Egypt in the wilderness, Moses gets this law of tables on, t law on tables of stone. But he also gets the tabernacle plan. And I can't go into too much depth with that because of time. And I don't want to keep you here till midnight, but I'll stay if you want to. <laughs> but in this plan, we find an altar of sacrifice, a place of repentance. We find where that sacrifice is laid on that altar and consumed by fire. And we also know that from there they would proceed to the laver of washing, water, repentance, Holy Ghost, water baptism. This is simply our approach to God. That is how we enter into the holy place. Without repentance, without the washing of water and baptism, without the infilling of the Holy Ghost, you and I cannot draw near to God. This is why in Romans 12, Paul implores us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. And what is that? That's our reasonable service. That we can't be conformed to this world, but we ought to be transformed by allowing the Holy Ghost to renew our minds. So Moses not only got the tabernacle blueprints, but he got the blueprints for the entrance into the kingdom. It was repentance, water baptism, Holy Ghost baptism. This first feast that they celebrate coming out of Egypt is Passover. And on Passover, the lamb is slain and the blood is applied. And the death angel passes over the houses where the blood is. Inextricably woven together with Passover is the Feast of Unleavened. And only unleavened bread is to be eaten during this time. Leaven, of course, as you know, is a type of sin. And it is to be purged from their houses. Matter of fact, during this feast, the head of the house will hide crackers and little fragments of bread in people's coat pockets, under the couch cushions, random places. And they are supposed to go through the house during that feast to purge out the leaven. Oh, that people of God would purge our houses and our lives of leaven. What does it say? A little leaven. Leaven at the lump. So three days after Passover is a feast called First Fruits, which celebrates the first fruits of the barley harvest. Fifty days from Passover is, of course, Pentecost. Also known to the Hebrews as Feast of Weeks because it's seven weeks after First Fruits. Or 50 days in, es in essence. So it celebrates the beginning of the wheat harvest, but it also commemorates the giving of the law of Moses on Sinai. So you have Passover, unleavened, first fruits, Pentecost. Those are the spring feasts. Jesus, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 and 7, is our Passover that was slain for us. He's the lamb slain for the sins of the world. Would you imagine that he is slain on Passover? The day that the priest is examining the lamb for the Passover, Jesus is crucified. So why doesn't he resurrect the next day? It's unleavened. Nothing rises without leaven. So he has to stay in the tomb to fulfill the feast. But three days later, his first fruits, and the Bible calls him the first fruits of our resurrection. So three days after Passover, he rises. Okay, and of course, he shows himself alive again after many infallible proofs, walks with the disciples, teaches the disciples, tells them to go to Pentecost and wait for the promise of the Father, right? Are you with me? 
So 50 days from Passover, they gather in Jerusalem for the feast. And they're in this upper room gathered together waiting to receive this promise. Acts 2 and 1 says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Now, I think you and I maybe interpret that as when that day really finally got there. That day Jesus told them to go and wait had finally come, but that's not really what it means. When it had fully come, that means when the time for it to be really fulfilled came. That all of these other things were pointing to what its real fulfillment was meant for. So they're in this upper room when a wind begins to blow. And cloven tongues like as of fire set upon each of them. And they're filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. When the Holy Ghost comes and writes, not on stone anymore, but on the table of the heart, God's commandment. So the day that Moses was on Sinai getting it on stone, these are in the upper room getting it on the heart. We see the new birth in the life of the prophet Jonah. Believe me or not. Jonah sent by God to a wicked city of Nineveh says, nope, going to go the opposite direction. And when you read it, it says he went down, 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 and down until finally he went down so far he's cast out and then swallowed up by a great fish that God had prepared for him. Now, you've gone pretty far if God has to prepare a fish to swallow you up. But I'm thankful that if you've gone too far, God will prepare a fish to swallow you up. I mean, that's mercy. Thank God. But what happens in this whale, the Bible doesn't say it was a whale. We, we say it's a whale. Great fish. He prayed. Jonah repented. He changed direction. That's real repentance. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, rather, 7 and 10 said that godly sorrow, that's what he had. Jonah had godly sorrow that worked repentance in his life so much that he turned directions says that the world has sorrow, but that kind of sorrow works death. There's people that, in the world that they do wrong things, and they're sorry for the consequences, but not sorry for their actions. God's people are supposed to be so sorry for the consequences that we change our actions. So Jonah repents, and this fish vomits him up, and I'm sure Jonah needed a shower desperately. But he vomits Jonah up onto land, and he walks now in new life. So there's death, there's burial, resurrection, there's repentance, water baptism, and the Spirit raises him up to walk in a new life. Jonah preaches the gospel. We see it in Elijah's contest at Carmel, where Elijah challenges 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of the grove, to see whose God is real, whose God is going to answer by fire. After all day of their screaming and cutting and antagonizing, trying to get Baal to answer. And I love, Elijah's a trash talker, y'all. <laughs> he's like, oh, he must be asleep. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe he stepped out. You know, maybe he went to lunch. Maybe just email him, text him, tweet him. I don't know. Maybe he'll answer. He, I, I love, he's a trash talker. Elijah's great. But he waits and I eventually, I think Elijah probably just got bored and he's like, okay, is it my turn yet? Because he's confident in what his God's going to do. So this is what Elijah does. He rebuilds an altar. He lays the wood in order. He performs this sacrifice and then he covers the wood and sacrifice with 12 barrels worth of water. 
And then he calls upon the name of the Lord. And the fire of God fell upon that sacrifice and consumed it all. The wood, the water, the stones, the sacrifice. So in 1 Kings 18, there's an altar. There's repentance. We see covering with water. That's baptism. And we see the fire of God fall. That's the Holy Ghost. Elijah preached the gospel. And I challenge you tonight, if you've allowed the altar in your life to fall into disrepair or neglect, it's time to lay that wood in order and get it in, get it in order. If you've, if you've neglected that altar, it's time to repair it. You don't have time. You don't have time to let that altar lay wasted. Time is short. You better rebuild that altar. You better lay yourself upon that altar and call upon the name of the Lord. And I promise you, I promise you that if you do, God will still answer you by fire. He is faithful and just to forgive. We can see God's blessing on our second birth in instances like Jacob and Esau, where the elder shall serve the younger. And he makes a pronouncement of Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Why? Because he despised the birthright. He wanted the blessing, but despised the responsibility that came with being the firstborn. We see God's preference for that second birth again. With Ishmael and Isaac, Ishmael was born of the bondwoman, Isaac of the free woman. One was born of the flesh, the other one was born of promise. You can have the right dad and the wrong mom. We all have one father, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free. She should be the mother of us all. So if you've not been born again, you've got the wrong mom. We see the new birth when God tests Abraham in Genesis 22 to offer Isaac a burnt offering. As Abraham prepares to offer his son, it says three days later. So in Abraham's mind, imagine with me, God has already told him. And we know Abraham's faithful. We know Abraham's going to do what God said to do. So for three days to have gone by now in Abraham's mind, his son is dead. So he and Isaac then ascend this mountain. And the wood is laid upon Isaac's back. So there's wood. They've got fire in hand. And he's got a knife. But Isaac says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So there's an altar that's built. And this wood is again laid in order. And now Isaac is bound. This human sacrifice laid on wood. Now prepared to die. But... Before Abraham can carry through with it, God stops him. Abraham, stop. And he says, look, there's a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So at this place of sacrifice, there's a ram, this substitutionary sacrificial animal that's crowned with thorns. To offer in place of Isaac. Let me point out to you, this is the same mountain that Jesus would later ascend with wood upon his back to be the sacrifice of the atonement in our place. I want to look at Joseph with me. When Joseph is given a wife in Egypt who bears him two sons, the firstborn is named Manasseh, the secondborn Ephraim. Manasseh comes from the root word nashah, which means to forget. Ephraim comes from the root word pre, which means fruit. So in Hebrew, as I've talked before, when you add I am to a word, it makes it plural, or in this case, it multiplies it. 
So listen to what the Bible says in Genesis 41, 51, and 52. It says, And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God said he hath made me to forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the second, the name of the second called the Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. For us, forgetfulness precedes fruitfulness. We can't be fruitful until we learn to be forgetful. There are some things that happened to you in your past. You got to let them go. You can't be fruitful until you're forgetful. That's why Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind. I press toward that mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In Genesis 48, Israel has Joseph bring his two sons to him so that he can bless them before he dies. You want to help me out, Brother Joey and Ash? Uh, one more man. Need one more man. Brother Dustin, you would come, please. We're going to illustrate this up here, if you don't mind. It's just going to be easier with a visual reference. Who wants to be Manasseh? Hey, Brother Dustin. You want to be Ephraim? Hey, hey you get to be the old man. <laughs> Why don't we take this chair? Okay, so I'll, I'll be Joseph by default here. You're going to be over here. You're, you're, you're from my firstborn and my secondborn. So this is what Joseph does. If he's taking his sons to his father to get the blessing, the older is on my left going to, going to Brother Israel's right. Ephraim, my younger, on my right, going to his left to receive the lesser blessing. So I bring him. Notice, he, hand, he crosses his hands to lay the right hand on the younger, the left hand on the older. Joseph says, no, 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 no. He's, and you say, not so, not so. Thank y'all. I use that to say this. In the cross, hmm, in the cross, hmm, my second birth is blessed. But it's got to go through the cross. This is what it means. Joseph named those boys Manasseh and Ephraim. Because God caused them to forget all the trouble. God caused them to forget all of the pain of being left in a well for dead. God caused them to forget the pain of the jail, the pain of the prison. And multiplied blessing upon him, made him fruitful. In a land of imprisonment, essentially. So through the cross, through the cross, we get a blessed second birth. Just there, read your word. We see the new birth in the account of Noah and the ark, whereas 1 Peter 3 and 20, 21 says this, where he declares that the long suffering of God is what permitted Noah time to build an ark. And that while he prepared that ark, eight souls were saved by water. Peter draws a comparison to something he's familiar with in verse 21. The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. The ark is a type of the church. To be saved from the coming destruction and peril this earth is going to face, we must enter into the ark. We must be in the church. The water and the spirit is the only way to become a part of the church. 
the new birth predates Jacob and Esau. It predates Isaac and Ishmael. It was part of God's plan before the giving of the law and the tabernacle plan, even before Adam's fall, when God, to cover their inadequate efforts to clothe themselves, made coats of skin. It goes back to the very, very beginning. Genesis 1 and 1, I know some of you have heard this before, but bear with me. It's obscure to readers of any other language but the original. When in the Hebrew, Moses writes the words, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamim ba'et haaretz. There are seven words in Hebrew. The fourth and middle word is a word that appears nowhere else. Et. It's written with the two Hebrew letters, Aleph and Tav. Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Tav is the last. So this word serves as a connection. The exact middle part of this verse, this fourth word that joins these seven, connecting heaven and earth. Connecting God and creation. In its original proto-Hebrew, the picture for Aleph is a sacrificial animal. And the picture for Tav is a cross. So there in the very beginning is a picture of a lamb on a cross. That's why the writers say that he's Alpha and Omega. Or in Hebrew you would say he's Aleph and Tav, first and last. So he's the word that was there in the beginning that John writes about in his gospel. He was made flesh, John says, and dwelt among us. Now Genesis 1 and 2. I'm almost finished. Genesis 1 and 2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. You may think differently, and you're entitled to, but you're wrong. Just playing. Just playing. But the God I know doesn't make anything that's not perfect. I mean, he, he does all things well. So imagine with me, why would he make an earth that's without form, void, and dark, chaotic? That's not the way God operates. So that leads me to believe that something happened before Moses was able to write Genesis 1 and 1. Something happened that predates that, that brought the earth into that state of despair. But this is what he does. So he, he comes down to this earth that's in chaos, in turmoil, like us before the new birth. And it says, and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So you've got spirit and you've got water. Next verse, verse 3. It says, and God said. There's the word. We have it in the first three verses of Genesis, a sacrifice, a word that's made flesh. We have a move of the Holy Ghost. And we have a world that's immersed in water. 1 John 5 and 8 says this. There are three that bear witness in the earth. The spirit and the water and the blood. Now we know that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. That blood must be shed. So the word had to become flesh so that it could bleed. So, and then... John says, these three agree in one. But my question to you is, what's the one they agree in? Let's finish verse 3. What did God say? God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
Let there be light. This light was not the sun because we read further in our Bible, the sun's not even made till day four. John 1 says this, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the source of light. His life is what brought light to men. It says in verse 5, the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. But that's a bad translation. A better translation would be that light shined into darkness, and darkness couldn't apprehend it. The darkness could not stop the light. And then there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And this John came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him, who? Through John, might believe on the light. He was not that light. John was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. I say to you tonight, let there be light. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But verse 12 says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Verse 13, which were born, not born of blood, not born of the will of the flesh, not born of the will of man, but what? Born of God. The plan from the very beginning, from before the very beginning, as we know it, that plan was in place. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's better to articulate it. He was the lamb slain before there was a foundation of the world. If you would stand with me. Prayer team, if you would come. That plan of salvation was when God said, let there be light. God had already put into place. God was not surprised by Adam's fall. And can I tell you, dear brother and sister, that he's not surprised by yours. He's not surprised by your mistakes. He's not surprised by your failures. He's not surprised by your disappointments or your shortcomings. You cannot catch him off guard. He's not surprised. The Bible says a righteous man falls seven times. So think about that. There's seven days a week. You can fall, Brother Joey, every day. If you get back up, you repent, you're going to be all right. Even a righteous man falls seven times. He didn't scratch his head when Adam fell in dismay and, man, what in the world am I going to do? My creation just fell. My creation just made a mortal mistake. What am I going to do? No. He didn't have to devise a plan at that moment. He didn't have to try to accommodate for Adam's fall after it happened. Adam's fall was already accounted for in the plan. There was a plan all along. So tonight, whether you're here or you're listening online, if you've never been born again, if you'll just lift your hands towards heaven, and if you'll repent of your sins, if you'll ask God to forgive you, the Bible declares that he's faithful and just to forgive. That I tell you that as fast as you can repent, God will forgive that fast. And if you've never been baptized, if you've never been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, 
Let the light of the world lighten your life tonight and be born again. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the privilege, Lord, of being born again. Your word declares to us that if any man hath not the spirit of God, he's none of his. That it's only by the Holy Ghost that we become adopted, that we have the right and the privilege to call you Father. It's by your spirit that we're able to make an approach to that throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, Lord. So we thank you for the gift of the Holy Ghost. We thank you, Lord, that you took our place on Calvary. Lord, it was us who deserved to be bruised. It was us to deserve to be beaten. It was us that deserved to be nailed upon that cross. But, Lord, you took my place. And, God, I thank you. I thank you for the blood that you shed. I thank you for the, the word that you shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. And I thank you for the promptings of the Holy Ghost to live soberly, to live righteously, and to live godly in this present world. To come out from among them and be separate. I thank you for your word, Lord, written that we are now epistles. Read of men, everywhere we go, God, let them read of the mercies and graces of God. We thank you for your presence tonight, Lord. We thank you for the word and your precious promise. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, thank you so much for being here in the house of the Lord. Praise the Lord. We'll see you all on Sunday. Praise the Lord. Why don't we give the Lord a hand clap of praise? Praise God. Greet one another before you go. Be safe on your way home, and we'll see you Sunday.